So good morning. My name is Kim Allen. I think many of you know me. And if not, you will a little bit by the end of the day. So, welcome to today's day long, which is on truth and trust. I hope that was a somewhat interesting title. I think these are topics that have a lot of depth and richness to them, partly because they're a little vague, and so we're not really clear what we mean by them. And yet they're very important at many levels. So I don't think by the end of the day we're going to answer that question completely, but we're going to explore. And just as a little bit of an overview, there will be a significant amount of sitting today, but also um, teachings and guided meditations and kind of walking through different angles of these topics of truth and trust as they're presented in the Buddhist teachings. And more of that will unfold as we go along. Okay, so maybe we start with uh, asking ourselves a question. (coughs) Many people have a sense that they're looking for something that's true or something that's trustworthy. Those are things that that are meaningful to us as human beings. So let me first ask, who thinks that the word truth sounds more interesting to them than trust? Is that kind of what draws you? And what about trust? Ah, so we have a, and some of you weren't committing, that's fine. (laughs) That's fine. So just kind of what resonates with your heart. And it's not that, yeah, so... At some level, I'm going to suggest that these two are actually similar in that they both point toward wanting to know something that is reliable. So something that's true is something that is reliable. And something that's trustworthy, also something that's reliable. So maybe these link together in some way, but they're just different languages. So this will help me uh, shape a little bit how I talk today. So in religion, many of us grew up with some kind of religion, and some of us grew up with no particular emphasis on religion, and all of those are fine. But whether we did or not, pervading through our Western culture, Judeo-Christian culture, are a lot of words and ideas around these ideas of truth and trust. (coughs) Excuse me. So... In religion, we often hear, this is not helping at all, okay. (coughs) In Western religion, we often hear the word belief or faith. Yeah, so these are common words that are used. But a lot of people have a, a little bit of trauma around these words in that they may have been used as a way of silencing your questions or your independent thought. These were criteria that you were told. You know, this is here in this setting, this is what we all believe. And you thought, huh, 
do I believe that? You know, but it maybe wasn't something that could be talked about so easily. So I'm aware that these words have some charge to them sometimes. I may use the word faith today. I've come to appreciate that word. It has a specific meaning in Buddhism that's different than in Christianity. I don't know if we'll get to tease all that apart today. But I just want to put out, first of all, that I'm aware that there's this background that we come in with of having interacted with systems that talk about belief and faith in the background. And we're bringing some of that also very prevalent in our society is science as a way of thinking. Uh, we, we live now still in the reverberations that happened during the Reformation hundreds of years ago in Europe where um, and the what they call the Enlightenment, which I think is interesting, um, uh, the scientific you know, development of understanding that there is a way to do experiments and learn things about the world that don't rely on uh, what somebody tells us, what a religion tells us. And that has wrought tremendous changes in society, none of which we're going to talk about today. <laughs> but we know it, right? This is, And this is now part of our, um, our understanding, all through the <clears throat> through that, through the Industrial Revolution, <clears throat> through the changes that have brought to education, our whole way of thinking and being and technology and all of that. So that's there. Um, science welcomes questions. It demands experimental verification. It's a whole different way of thinking. And in some ways it offers uh, the same invitation that Buddhist practice does of investigating our experience. You know, we're told, don't come in and believe something. Really trust and, and experience your world and learn to rely on that. <clears throat> and, you know, look into what it is and you can ask questions. So in some ways there's a resonance there. And some people have made a big deal about that resonance. The Buddha was the first scientist. He was a scientific, a scientist of the mind. You hear phrases like this. They're not so far off. But they also don't capture everything. It's a. It's still. It's now looking through Buddhism, looking at Buddhism through the scientific lens. So I'll, I'll let you know that I think science is also a religion. It has all the same trappings. It has a set of values that people share. It has a set of practices that people do that are accepted. And if you're not doing those, you're not doing science. It has a way of thinking, and it has things that it accepts as true. They're not things that were written in a book that was you know, supposedly put together many centuries or millennia ago. Instead, it accepts as true things that can be verified in a third-party laboratory setting. So I do an experiment, I get a result. If you can do an experiment and also get that result, that lends weight. It's true in some way. So this is called third-party truth. Don't worry, this is not a philosophical day, but I want to set the, I want to get the setting. I want you to know where, what, I want you to be aware of what you're bringing into this. So third-party truth. This excludes an entire realm of human experience, which is first-party truth. What you feel. Nobody else can feel that. Therefore, it's not verifiable, it's not provable, it's not scientific. But it's real, isn't it? And it's honored in Buddhism in certain ways. So there's a realm that Buddhism explores that science doesn't in a different way. 
So we live with the trappings of our religious upbringing. We live with a scientific religion in our culture. I talk about this with a little bit of passion because I was originally a scientist. Uh, I was trained as a physicist. I loved that way of thinking. And it, was, it worked for me for a long time. Um, that presents only one side of me. I was also an athlete. I was also a poet, etc. But the science was what I went into. And it, it moved me in a certain way. But there came a point in my scientific education where I felt like it wasn't offering everything that I wanted. It wasn't the tr- exactly the truth that I was looking for. It wasn't exactly as trustworthy as I was looking for in a certain way. It felt like a three-dimensional space that was missing one point, the origin or the middle. Now, in some ways, that's very profound, actually, but I was thinking more on a psychological level. It didn't include me. It didn't include my experience. So that was maybe an initial impetus. Things have changed since then. But that religion didn't completely work for me. (laughs) Now, there is yet another background cultural thing that we have going on here. We are a very scientific culture, but we also have ideas that might be called postmodernist floating around in our culture. This is the idea that everything is equally true. You know, um, there are no standards. This is, this is a result of maybe globalization of contact with many different... We're all aware of many different cultural systems. We're told to... This is part of democracy also, is to uh, respect and include different ways of thinking. And this is all part of the idea that we're... You know, each person is an independent entity who can choose their way of seeing things and their way of pursuing happiness. Very American. And the the later, more modern versions of it even say, you know, there are different ethics in different cultures. So there there are really no absolute standards, uh, no way to judge anything, really, if you look carefully at it. And hence, everyone's truth, personal truth, is in a way unquestionable. I'm not saying you believe this, but this is... um, this is an idea that floats around our culture and has some traction because it resonates with ideas about America and ideas about individual freedom and such. So we have my truth and we have your truth and they're all true and we can express them and share them and appreciate them. However, if everything is equally true, that means that everything is equally trustworthy. Everything is equally trustworthy. Do you believe that? No, I don't either. (laughs) So this is equality gone amok in some sense. I don't think it's spiritually useful to believe that everything is trustworthy or that every truth is equally valid, which is dangerous. That's a very dangerous thought in this country. So... I hope I stirred things up a little bit with that introduction. Maybe you're not quite sure now. (laughs) And that's where we're going to (laughs) start. So let me, uh, this is now a question to all of you. Um, I welcome a little participation. When you come to spiritual practice, 
I mean, for some reason you've all decided to meditate and bring this into your life in some way. And I don't, you know, I don't know what what all that means to you, and, and it will change over time. But as of right now, what are you seeking? What question do you have? Does anyone want to share? From you don't have to share your deepest, most profound. But kind of what? What do you want to know about what's trustworthy and what's true? What's interesting you? It's interesting that you pose the question because, in, in the context that you posed it, because the idea of science is that we can verify it by replication. And so we take us outside of ourselves our subjective idea, and we can be pretty much start to understand fundamental reality that we, we couldn't see or could begin to understand. And then in the context of looking at our own experience, the question is, can I trust myself when I hear something, respond to something, react to my reaction? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I, um, I, so, so why do I come? I come because that is my experience, and um, it, wanting to uh, to re- to live actively brings mm-hmm. uh, me to this seat. Fantastic! That um, I won't even try to summarize all of that. It stands on its own. But I hear in <coughs> a number of things that may resonate for others. What about my experience and my response to the world? Can I trust? Um, I had the experience early in my practice I'm not saying I'm not projecting onto you it's just bringing I'm adding it it came up is that I I had the experience that I knew I wasn't wise that's why I wanted to practice but if I wasn't wise how could I trust myself to do the right practice or to find the right teacher how do I know I'm wise enough to do that Um, it was an interesting question I was kind of stuck with my own mind as it was but I knew it wasn't going to be navigating perfectly. So how could I, how could I navigate that? And you also pointed toward um, knowing that there was an ability, maybe, maybe not fully put, you know, that potential not fully developed, but some kind of ability to find what is actually true. If we can dare to say that word, it's very hard to speak about this without bringing in ideas of absolute truth, of etc. Um, we're going to unpack during the day that you know those those kinds of words, but maybe there is something beyond my own little world that exists inside my head. Um, you know, we feel we know the limitation of our own perception of our own mind, our own experience, and yet what else do we have? And so there's this idea of I want to find something that is more reliable than the me that is reactive in a sense Um, and it's not easy and that's why we help each other to do it and this is why Buddhism is quite profound in that it takes what we start with wherever we are whatever mix of this mind and body we bring and it aligns it in a certain way with the ability not to suffer 
and that is something that is true and something that is trustworthy, non-suffering, kind of the aim that's offered. And maybe if we weren't suffering, it wouldn't matter if that were an absolute truth. Maybe. (laughs) We wouldn't need to declare it from the mountaintop. It would be good enough not to suffer. (laughs) I know, I realize this is not... um, spark a lot of thoughts but I encourage you not to go with the thoughts thought hasn't worked up to now to discover the truth <laughs> and so we're, the, the Buddhist teachings are a little more experiential and they talk about you know what was alluded to there can I find something in my own experience yeah which is very different from being offered a book that contains the truth or being told that it's only what third parties can verify in an experimental, measurable setting. It's a little different from those. So, let's turn toward Buddhism now um, with the understanding that we're coming from this Western context. Here we are, we're sitting in the modern West, but we're studying the teachings of the Buddha because they're meaningful to us in some way. So the Buddha also recognized that people would encounter his teachings with some background. They came from Indian culture in the 5th or 6th century BCE. And, you know, they weren't blank slates either. There was a whole religious system, there was a whole culture, there were other cultures that were interacting with that one, not as much as we have in today's global world. So he knew, he didn't just present his ideas in a vacuum. He, um, he often contextualized them or set them up uh, so that people could understand them relative to what they were bringing in. He knew that that was going to happen. But miraculously, he did it in a way that still works today for whatever we're bringing in. He was, very, he was, pro, he was brilliant in terms of that. So there's actually a, a lot of suttas that kind of touch into this if you, if you bring this lens in. How was the Buddha trying to relate to people? And how did he want people to relate to his teachings? And so he offered advice, specific advice on how to interact with religious teachings, how to find religious truth. Um, and he also provided some warnings about ways that our own belief systems can get us off track. And we see that even today. So that's okay. So how do we know what's true? particularly religious truth. What questions can we ask and what way can we practice in order to discover what is actually true? What is, you know, what is drawing our heart in some way? So these were relevant questions in ancient India also. So the Buddha doesn't offer truth in the form of a doctrine. We impose that. We think there was a philosophy there, but not really. Nor does he require trust to us to just sort of trust something that we can't verify or investigate for ourselves. There's very little sense of belief or faith <coughs> that is blind. Although there may be a need for faith before we really know for ourselves. You have to read something, listen to a teacher, read something, meditate. So the question maybe that I'll to frame it in more Western terms is What do we hold as authoritative? What's your authority in your life? 
do you hold the word of a teacher as authoritative? Everything Kim is saying should be believed. I hope that's not it. Um, <laughs> traditions or texts. We believe a lot of what we read. The authority of a book is amazing. You know, I read this, I'm going to open it and read it. <laughs> and that has a certain weight. Well, it does, and it, you know, some value to that. Our own experience. That should have some weight, I think. Um, you know, the total externalization to the scientific lab, I think, misses something very important to the human heart. So, our own experience matters. How about logic or emotion, our ways of comprehending things in our head, in our heart? Those have some weight also. I think all of these things we could say are in the mix for us, probably. Maybe some more than others, but consider for yourself where where do you stand in there? So the Buddha knew this. These are not special to Westerners. This is the way the human mind works. It thinks about things, it feels things, it interacts with things, it has a culture that it lives in. This has always been true for people. So the Buddha wrote this fantastic discourse, well said, spoke, and it was written down later, apparently. This fantastic discourse that takes that on basically. And it lists, I have them here so I won't read uh, from the book this time, but it, um, it lists five, he says, these are five things that may turn out in two different ways. Okay? And here are the five things. Faith, or belief. Approval, which means we like it. Oral tradition, kind of culture, reasoned cognition, logic, reflective acceptance, kind of intuition, if you will. So the first two of these are kind of emotional, faith and liking, sort of a sense of resonance. The third is cultural, oral tradition or cultural tradition, this is how we do it. And the last two are cognitive, Reason, cognition, and reflective acceptance. So our mind, how we think about things. And he says, each of these things may turn out two different ways. It may be that something is believed um, very deeply, but it actually isn't true. Or it may be that something is not believed, but it actually is true. And same for each of the five. I'll, I'll choose another one. Reason, cognition, something may be very logically thought out, but it's not actually true. <laughs> How many times have we done that, right? <laughs> or there may be something that is completely considered illogical um, by our standards of logic, but it's actually true. Could turn out that way. And we've probably experienced that too. Yeah. So essentially, he said, takes these five things which constitute a lot of how we interact with the world. <laughs> um, and he says they're all unreliable forms of knowing. This is how the sutta, this is kind of the first teaching in the sutta. It's like, whoa. So he just <laughs> removes the ground. And he says these are all unreliable forms of knowing. So note how radically that stands in contrast to many forms of religious truth, for example, that we're told. And many forms of scientific truth, many forms of cultural truth. So he says these are all unreliable forms of knowing. He doesn't say they're bad. He doesn't say they're wrong, like, don't do any of these things. I mean, how would you function if you couldn't do these things? 
He doesn't say that. He just says, be aware that these are not totally reliable. So we can get that. Okay, they're not totally reliable. So he doesn't leave us hanging there. He then suggests that there are kind of three ways to approach truth, if you will. So he says, first of all, when we don't know the truth for ourselves and we're relying on these five methods, we, we do what's called preserving the truth or safeguarding the truth by um, knowing which of these five forms we're in and saying that. So, for example, if you have faith in something, you say, my faith is thus. You've preserved the truth. You're not saying this is absolutely true, but you're saying, I have faith that this is true. Or if you've reasoned something out, then you say, I've really thought about it, and I think this is, this is how it is. I'm, logically, I think this is so. You're not saying this is absolutely true. If you don't think it, you're wrong. But you're acknowledging that you're using logic, and this is how you know that this is true. He says this is totally fine, and that this is, um, this is how we preserve religious truth when we haven't verified it for ourselves. Interesting that he throws that in. He then throws in, this is how you speak when you haven't verified it for yourself. So the person who, he's having a conversation with the person in this discourse, and the person is quick and they're smart, and they say, well, how, how do you know for yourself? You know, how do you discover the truth for yourself? After he put this tantalizing phrase at the end, you know, this is how you speak when you don't know the truth for yourself. And then he offers a version of the path. He says, oh, you're interested in that. You're interested in discovering the truth. Okay. And so he um, says, all right, here is how one discovers the truth. One place is faith in a teacher. It's a series of steps. There's 12 or 13 of them. Places faith in a teacher based on, there's a description of what it means to place faith in a teacher, but we don't have time to go into that right now. And then he says, filled with faith, he visits the teacher and pays respect. Having paid respect, he gives ear. When he gives ear, he hears the Dhamma. Having heard the Dhamma, he memorizes it and examines the meaning of the teachings. So he thinks about it. Having examined their meaning, he gains a reflective acceptance. When he has gained a reflective acceptance, zeal springs up. When zeal has sprung up, he applies his will. Having applied his will, he scrutinizes. Having scrutinized, he strives. Resolutely striving, he realizes with the body the supreme truth and sees it by penetrating it with wisdom. This, he says, is reliable knowing. So there's the discovery of truth. He realizes it with the bo- he realizes with the body the supreme truth and sees it by penetrating it with wisdom. This is the promise that he offers. So it's interesting in that the Buddha seems to accept that there is a certain amount of truth in the way that we live. There are things that we reason out, there are things that we place faith in. None of these are completely reliable, but he doesn't ever diss that. I want to be clear about that. He says he's, he's, there are different levels of truth. Um, 
And then, but he's very clear that he says this word supreme truth. And that that's realized through hearing the Dhamma, so hearing these teachings, and meditating on them until we see something for ourselves. This is reiterated again and again throughout the teachings, this idea of seeing for oneself. And that's the, you know, that's, we're called insight, Sanity is insight. <laughs> and that's insight, is to see something very deeply with a different kind of seeing than we normally do. And it's not that that's like the supreme thing. Actually, the sutta goes on to say, after you've seen it for the first time, you're not done. There's a bunch more work after that. We're not going to go into that. But he basically says, you see it for the first time, and then you have a better reference point. And then after that, there's kind of, he says, there is not yet the final arrival of truth, and then there's more work to be done. But there's something that we can see. And I think, instead of making it maybe so dramatic, we can say we're going to see a lot of things through our practice. But it's not seeing like reading a book, it's not seeing like thinking about it, it's seeing like we sat there and we really went into our experience and we really knew it for ourselves. So, truth as an experiential thing. Interesting different than anything else that's offered currently in other religions, other, maybe that's not true, I won't broad brush all other religions that way, but maybe we haven't been brought up with ideas like that, and so it requires a little bit of having the ground pulled out like I tried to do in the first ten minutes, and say, okay, what is it, you know, what is really true? What is really trustworthy? Same thing. What do I trust? How can I trust? If I can't trust logic, I can't trust faith, I can't trust a book. But maybe I can trust my heart somehow. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna take a break now and uh, do some walking meditation. The day will be held in silence as much as we can. Um, So for now we're going to have a chance to get up and anyone who would like instruction in walking meditation I can offer that or if you'd like to to do that on your own and we'll come back in 20 minutes at 9, 10, 50.